You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we haven't met before, my name's, my name's Matt, says my name tag, and I uh, serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Good to see you all here for whatever reason you find yourself here today. And if we haven't met, we'd love to get the chance to do that uh, before you, you head home a little later. Uh, a couple of just celebrations to share with you before we move into our teaching time. A lot of women from our church got to do the, the women's one-day gathering yesterday in the, uh, the little Italy that is the Bongiorno Retreat and Conference Center in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So thanks to all of you who were able to come out for that. Thanks to all of you who had a part in leading that. Uh, I heard phenomenal reports about the whole day, just the teaching that was there, the time just together in conversation. Uh, if you see Jenna Wright, make sure you thank her especially. She put a lot of time and energy along with her team to put that all together. Uh, but it was great that, that uh, the ladies got to be together in Carlisle for that yesterday. One other thing to celebrate, we're a part of a small family of churches called the Liberty Communion. Uh, and we have sister churches, fellow churches in this community that try to support and care for and love each other. One of those churches is Liberty Church of the River Wards. They're in Philadelphia in the River Ward neighborhoods right up against the Delaware River. Uh, they actually were the church that directly planted us about 12, 11 or 12 years ago. They have an incredible opportunity right now to buy a building for 20 years, they've been a church. They've never owned a building. Uh, a building became available kind of at the intersection of the neighborhoods that they serve. And they were, they were able to put an offer in on it. The offer got accepted. And so they're now in a period of due diligence between now and basically the end of the year. Um, because of your generosity, giving to, to our church, uh, it's enabled us to be generous in different ways over the years. But we were able to give a gift of $25,000 to Liberty River Wards to help them secure that building during this period of due diligence. So just wanted to say thank you and share that update. That wasn't a, a part of our planned budget for the year, uh, but because you are generous with what you have, we get to be as a church generous with what we have. And until um, God would provide us uh, a building of our own, we're just going to happily help other people do that uh, for, for sister churches like that. So I wanted to share that with you uh, as well. In your Bibles, you can make your way to Exodus chapter 15. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Bob mentioned a minute ago, page 57 is where that, uh, that text begins. Last week, we witnessed the Israelites walk through the sea on dry ground. And so at this point now in this study of Exodus, by, we've seen that by plagues and by the Passover and then the parting of the sea, God has delivered his people from centuries of slavery in Egypt, and they are finally free. We left them last week in the middle of chapter 15, singing their salvation. They joined their voices together. They lifted their voices. They were singing their salvation. And as that scene faded to black, it's comforting for us to know today that they lived happily ever after. You're laughing if you know the story that that's not true, right? This is just like your life, right? Once you became a Christian, every, everything since that moment has gone flawlessly. Once you became a Christian, the sun started shining on you every single day. Nothing hard happened to you in your life. Your bad habits, your sin patterns, even the brokenness that you experience, all of that just disappeared. Your life is now basically just one extended tourism commercial, one big smile, no, of course not. Of course that's not true. As we're going to see this morning, it was not true for the Israelites either. You could think of it this way. This is not a Disney movie. This is the desert. And really, in an in a incredibly accurate anticipation of our own lives of faith, what we see after the Red Sea is that God's people are not delivered directly into the promised land. 
They're delivered into the desert. So if you're, a, if you're a Christian who thought that following Jesus would be an easy, carefree kind of life, and you find yourself discouraged right now, you've been really disillusioned recently about how reality is so much different than what you expected, this is a text for you. Or if you're, an, if you're not a Christian, and you're here maybe this morning exploring Christianity, and it seems like the, the Christians you know act way too happy all the time, and it feels fake to you, and it feels inauthentic to you. You can't even imagine yourself ever, be, ever being able to join in a group of people that look happy like that. This is a text for you. God does not deliver his people directly into the promised land. He delivers them into the desert. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log or a tree. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a stature and a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were, set, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Zen. This looks like sin, spelled like sin, it's probably pronounced Zen which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse nine. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening the quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. 
But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside until the morning as Moses had commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Skip down to chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Zen by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses, said to the, Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, even as we are seeing in this text this morning, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so now by your spirit, make us hungry for your word, that it would nourish us today and each day in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who himself is the bread of heaven. Amen. This part of Exodus is the first of the wilderness narratives or the desert narratives. And these three accounts, the bitter water, the bread from heaven, and the water from the rock, establish a pattern of God's provision that will continue for the next 40 years. After coming through the Red Sea, they find themselves not in the promised land, but in the desert. And what we see right away is that the desert is a place of both dependence and defiance. Dependence and defiance. It's a place of dependence where God tests Israel. It's also a place of defiance where Israel tests God. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning exploring those two things. So first, let's talk about dependence. The first two accounts here in this passage are about God testing Israel. Three days removed from the Red Sea, they are without water. And as we read it, they finally find some. It's so bitter, it's undrinkable. 
So they named this place Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. And it's quickly apparent that more than the water is bitter. The people are bitter. They're grumbling. They're complaining to Moses. Moses cries out to God. God shows him a log or a tree of some kind, which when thrown into the water, makes it sweet, makes it drinkable. Fast forward from there, uh, maybe a couple more weeks. Now in a different part of the wilderness, the wilderness of Zen, the people grumble again. And this time, it's not about water. It's about food. And this time, their complaint is pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. Hey, remember Egypt? Man, that place was awesome, wasn't it? I mean, it was basically like the melting pot, that fondue restaurant, and a 24-7 bakery. Like the meat pots that we got to eat from all the time, the bread as much as we wanted. Man, I miss Egypt. It's one thing to be, to be gaslighted by another person. This is Israel gaslighting itself, okay? Their, their memories of Egypt are so nostalgic. They're so overly idealized. It's become unrecognizable from reality. In Egypt, they were slaves. That's reality. They were worked to the bone. They were beaten day after day. In Egypt, because they were a threat to Pharaoh, their kids were murdered. That's reality. And yet here they are looking back fondly on their slavery. Who does that? Who could be so forgetful, so delusional, that within a month of being set free, they're looking back longingly on their slavery? I could. You could. A life of faith is not an easy life. It is a life of unknowns. What path is God going to take me on? What are the pains and the sorrows and the challenges that life is going to involve? And how will God meet me on it and provide for me? And so rather than face those uncertainties of faith, there are times when we long for the certainty of slavery. In Egypt, at least the Israelites knew where they would sleep at night. They knew that they'd most likely be given food and water because they needed it to have the energy to be slaves again tomorrow. For us, who were once enslaved to sin, at least we knew what to expect. We got used to the the temporary highs of indulging our sin. The temporary highs of our lust or our greed or our anger or whatever that has been for you. We got used to the guilt and the shame and the feeling of those things, right? We already maybe suspected that we were unlovable. We already maybe suspected that that we were aimless people. Well, at least the shame that we experienced in that life of slavery to sin proved that to be true. Notice though, that these moments where we wildly misremember our past and we look longingly back to our slavery, they become moments where God invites us to deeper dependence. Without rebuke, the Lord simply satisfies their hunger. Each evening, he's going to provide quail for meat. Each morning, he's going to provide this manna, this bread from heaven. So these first two accounts are about dependence. They're about dependence. In both chapter 15, verse 25, and chapter 16, verse 4, we read that God is testing Israel. He's testing his people. And what specifically is he testing? He's testing their trust. He's testing their dependence. Will they listen to him and walk in his ways? Will they keep following him in faith? Will they keep relying on him, depending upon him to provide what they need? If you're familiar with this story, if you're familiar with the Bible, the desert or the wilderness almost always has a negative connotation. We hear the desert, we hear the wilderness, we think, bad place. It's a place that Israel had to wander for 40 years as a punishment. It's a place of Israel's rebellion. It's a place of their defiance. 
And that's true. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what I hope you see this morning is that it didn't have to be that kind of place. What I hope you see this morning is that there's actually something really good about the desert. There's an incredible opportunity for Israel in the desert. Before it became a place of punishment, it was a place of provision. And rather than being a place of defiance, it was a place that God intended to deepen their dependence. See, when God tests the Israelites in these ways, it's for their good. He's gotten his people out of Egypt, but as we've seen, he hasn't gotten the Egypt out of his people. Clearly, that they're still longing to go back. They're still carrying something of their slavery, something of Egypt with them. Philip Ryken puts it this way. He said, going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. It was not necessary for their salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. Israel still has this deep bond to Egypt, this deep bond to their slavery, and God wants to break them of it. He isn't content simply to save them. He's going to sanctify them too. He's going to form them into the distinct holy people that they've always been meant to be. And this is the good purpose behind God testing his people. Years and years later, the apostle James will write in James chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. You may be sanctified. In other words, lacking in nothing. In other words, Testing is not God trying to sift you out of his kingdom. It's God trying to sift the sin out of you. Testing exposes what we really think, what we really believe. It exposes who we really trust. And it shows us where we still want to cling to sin, where there's still a little bit of Egypt in us. It creates, therefore, this opportunity to be formed in deeper dependence. Because dependence is something that we're actually never meant to outgrow. Notice here that that God meets the Israelites' needs day by day. He does not set them up to independently provide for themselves during the rest of their journeys. He sets them up to depend on him today and then tomorrow and then the day after that over and over again. That's true with the manna. You can only collect enough for today. Today's provision is for today. It's also true of the Sabbath. Exodus 16 is the first time we hear a reference to the Sabbath. It has not yet been codified as the fourth of the Ten Commandments. That's in Exodus 20. It's a few weeks out from now. But like manna, the Sabbath is an invitation to dependence. It's it's, don't work for a day. Set aside your labors and your striving. Remember that it's God that upholds the universe, not you by your efforts. It's It's a day to trust and to rely and to depend. And this ongoing dependence is what God intends for our lives as Christians too. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he fulfilled what these accounts in Exodus pointed toward. And we got to hear it this morning, even in our liturgy. The gospel of John in particular highlights this. So in the desert, the Israelites needed water. In the gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself to be the living water. The only one that can can satisfy, the only one that can quench our spiritual thirst. In the desert, the Israelites needed bread. Jesus is, John chapter 6, the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, the one who offers the bread of his flesh for the life of the world. Jesus is God's ultimate provision for our needs. Jesus alone can satisfy our thirst and our hunger. Like Exodus, 
you and I are not saved directly into the promised land of heaven. We are saved into the desert of this world. It seems like heaven would be better. Does it not? It seems like heaven, it would certainly be easier if we were taken straight out of this world immediately after putting our faith in Jesus and didn't have to deal with any of the sin, any of the brokenness that still exists, that still plagues our lives. But church, God isn't only committed to get you out of sin, he's committed to get the sin out of you. He's committed not only to your salvation, but to your sanctification. And so the desert of this world becomes an opportunity for deeper dependence. We don't just trust Jesus once. We trust him day by day and moment by moment. We continually rest in and rely on and return to the living water, the bread from heaven that is Jesus. I've heard it said this way before. God's grace is not given as a lifetime supply. God's grace is not given as a lifetime supply. Now, to be sure, there is a lifetime supply. There's more than a lifetime. There's an inexhaustible, eternity-long supply, but we receive it one day at a time. Like Jesus taught his disciples to pray, like we prayed together this morning, give us this day, give us today our daily bread. It's the reason that one of our rhythms of grace here at Liberty Church isn't just Bible study and prayer, it's daily Bible study and prayer. The word daily in that rhythm of grace matters and not as some kind of legalistic checkbox, not so that we can like come knocking on your door and say, did you do it today? Did you do it today? No, the word daily matters because daily dependence is the only way we can ever truly follow Jesus. We can't get grace in a lifetime supply. We get grace for today and tomorrow we get grace for that day. And so I want to ask you this morning, where are you attempting to outgrow dependence in your life? Where are you attempting to outgrow dependence? Maybe you're fed up with the unknowns of a life of faith and you're longing to return to some aspect of a life of sin. You'd rather go back to the certainty of doing it your way. Maybe you're, you're battling deep discontentment, soul-level discontentment. You want something different than what God is providing for you right now. I've been in both of those places, and no doubt in my mind, I'll find myself back in those places in my life again. But for me recently, I've been forgetting the goodness of dependence. I've been forgetting the purpose that God has in testing I've been wishing for easy circumstances. I've been getting really frustrated by some of the tests that God brings. The reality though is that a life of dependence on Jesus is infinitely better than any life I could orchestrate for myself. The the reality is, is that God has so much ongoing sanctifying work to do in me that I need the tests. I need the tests. The reality is I am loved by a God who doesn't just want to remove me from sin, but to remove sin from me. And what I would say to you this morning is that you are that love too. You are that love too. So however you might be grumbling and complaining in your life right now, see the opportunity of the desert. See the the purpose of God testing his people. See the beauty of a life of ongoing dependence that you never outgrow. Second, let's talk about defiance. Defiance. It would be great if the desert were only a place of dependence. But sadly, as many of you know, it's also a place infamous for its defiance. As we read, the the desert is not just the place where God tests Israel. It's the place where Israel turns around and tests God. This third account at the start of chapter 17, it's different from those first two accounts. Instead of grumbling, the people are now, verse 2, quarreling. It's escalated a notch. That's a stronger word than grumbling. There's more contempt in that word. 
And instead of voicing their needs, hey, we need some water to drink, now they're demanding something. Give us water to drink. Worst of all, verse 7 of chapter 17, they question God's presence with them. Maybe even his very existence. They say, is the Lord among us or not? It's their way essentially of putting God on trial. It's them responding to testing by turning around and testing God. It might seem subtle, but there is a massive difference between honestly complaining to God and testing God. See, on the one hand, God receives, even welcomes, an incredible amount of our complaining. That's essentially a whole category of the Psalms. Lament, grieving, groaning, complaining, bringing their questions and their wrestling and their doubts to God. That's a whole category of the Psalms. And God responds with incredible patience and grace. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that sometimes our faith is so faint-hearted, the only thing we can bring is a grumble. The only thing we can bring is a complaint. An honest complaint can actually be a beautiful expression of faith. If we're taking it to God, we're at least acknowledging he's there. We're at least assuming he, he might care a little bit, that he's not silent, that he has both the power and the desire to respond. An honest complaint can be like the father in the gospel of Mark chapter 9 who cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. But that's really different than testing God. That's really different than putting God on trial. And here, having witnessed example after example of God showing up, the Israelites do that latter thing. They put God on trial. See, if we witness example after example of God showing up and working on our behalf, and our response to that is to turn around and question his very existence or his presence with us, that's rebellion. That's defiance. So how can we know if what we're doing in any given moment is an honest complaint or is testing God? Well, thankfully, looking back on this instance, the Bible gives us the best litmus test. And it has everything to do with the state of our heart. Is our heart soft or is our heart hard? Psalm 95, referring back to this moment in Exodus 17, says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. That's this place where the the water, the rock was struck. On the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So there is a faint-hearted faith which can bring honest complaints to God while remaining soft, while remaining open toward God. But testing God means your heart has become hardened. You're, you're no longer crying out to God for deliverance in faith. You're now putting God on trial. And that kind of defiance, as we read there in, the Psalm, in Psalm 95, is dangerous. It, it kept the generation of Israelites out of the promised land. As the psalmist put it, it's what keeps us from entering God's rest. So the best way for you and I to apply this third account of ex, in Exodus is to practice exactly what Psalm 95 says, and do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. In light of Exodus, a hardened heart has a ton of meaning because as we've seen in this book, who in Exodus has a hard heart? Pharaoh. Pharaoh does. This, that's how quickly the people of God can start to act just like Pharaoh. They've been delivered from slavery. They've been brought into the desert to learn continual dependence. It's possible to choose defiance instead. Even after all you've seen, even after all you've come through, you can end up with a heart that's as hard as Pharaoh's. 
So friends, do not harden your heart. Don't respond to God's deliverance by putting him to the test. He has all kinds of patience for your honest complaints, but do not become defiant and put him on trial. In Hebrews chapter three, this moves from an individual warning to a community pursuit, to a community pursuit. After quoting this portion of Psalm 95, the author writes in Hebrews chapter three, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're not meant to follow Jesus as isolated individuals. We're meant to follow Jesus in community. Throughout the New Testament, we have all of these one another commandments. That's the basis for the rhythm of grace that we have here called one anothering. And among the one another's, I just want to always make these connections whenever I can. Among the one another's is this one from Hebrews that's directly linked to the waters of Meribah and the waters of Massa in Exodus 17. Exhort one another. In other words, support challenge, encourage one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Defiance is deceitful. What begins as lament or honest complaint can become putting God to the test. Faint-hearted faith can become a hardened heart. And so consider this morning, who am I exhorting and who is exhorting me? Who am I exhorting and who is exhorting me? We cannot hold ourselves accountable, nor are we meant to. We need to be known. We need to be encouraged and challenged and supported. Life in the desert is hard. The place that God intends to teach us dependence becomes the place of our defiance. So who are you exhorting and who is exhorting you? If you don't have one or two people that come to mind right away in each of those two categories, you're at substantially higher risk of hardening your heart. You're at a substantially higher risk for that. So if you don't have people, I would just implore you this morning, find people. Find people. Ask people in your Bible study group. Ask mature Christian friends. Let them know that you need them to challenge you and to encourage you. Offer to people who need that, that you are willing to do that for them. If you do have those people, if those people do come immediately to mind this morning, praise God. Praise God. Take time today, even as the author of Hebrews put it, as long as it's called today, to offer that support, to offer that challenge, that encouragement, or take time today to express your gratitude for those who have committed to do that for you. As I said last week, there's a lot of ways we can apply the book of Exodus to our lives, but the real beauty of Exodus is not how we apply it to our lives, but how God has already applied it for us. That's true of the Passover. That's true of the crossing of the Red Sea. I want you to see this morning, it's true here in the desert too. This generation of Israelites, they failed their test in the desert. And so instead of a place of dependence, it became a place of defiance. But centuries later, Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, would pass the test that they failed. Led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, into the desert, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And after 40 days, quoting Moses, quoting about God's provision of manna here in Exodus, Jesus refused to put God to the test and thereby pass the test that Israel failed. See, Jesus is the living water who satisfies our spiritual thirst. Jesus is the bread of life who came down from heaven for the life of the world. Jesus is also the true Israelite who was faithful where Israel failed. But there's one more thing Jesus is. There's one more fulfillment of something that we see in this text. Jesus is also the rock. He's the rock. 
when Israel tests God at Meribah, God tells Moses, take your staff, the, the thing that I've been using for you to work all of these miracles, the thing that I just used to part the Red Sea, take your staff, lift it up over your head and strike who? The people? I mean, they certainly deserved it. In this moment, their, their hearts are becoming as hard as Pharaoh's. But Moses doesn't strike the people, does he? What does he strike? The rock. And the rock was Christ. So says the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus Christ is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Jesus Christ is the one, Isaiah 53, who was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, and by his wounds we are healed. Friends, we are saved not directly into the promised land, but into the desert. And though that's hard, though that's hard, recognize today the opportunity of that. Recognize the purpose of God's testing, the beauty of a life of ongoing dependence, and the hope that God is not only getting you out of sin, but is getting sin out of you. Recognize that you can't live this life in the desert on your own. The desert becomes a place of defiance. So exhort one another every day that your heart might not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But in these pursuits, know that in the midst of the desert that is this world, your God is with you. Your God is with you. This question that the Israelites ask at the end of this text, is the Lord among us or not? Thanks be to God, he is. And we get to say with even more confidence than the Israelites ever could, that in Jesus, he is. Jesus is among us as our living water, our bread of life as the true Israelite and as the rock by whose wounds we are healed. Is the Lord among us or not? In Jesus Christ, he is. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, would you give us strength to live out this truth that we have heard today? Jesus, we rejoice that you are the rock struck for our salvation. We rejoice that you passed the test that your people failed in the wilderness. Because that would be our story too. That is our story too. We fail the test left to ourselves. And so thank you that more than anything else, you are with us and you are the bread of life. You are the one who offered your body as the bread for the life of the world. As we prepare now to come to this table where we see that bread, which has been offered for us, would you remind us of both the great cost of it, but also truly that by your wounds, we have been healed. God, you have provided for us in Jesus. You are with us in Jesus. And pray this all for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.